And those of you with me, would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to take a little detour before we get into Matthew 11. I'm preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, as most of you know. And we're moving passage by passage, verse by verse. But I want to start with an introduction from Jesus in Luke 14. So, go to Luke 14 first. And I'm going to read through verses 15 to 24 as we get started this morning. Considering the parable of the great banquet. The parable of the great banquet. Starting in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him, with Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at that time, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, Well, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. I read this parable from the Lord Jesus because I think it illustrates what we see him teach in Matthew chapter 11. So why don't you turn now to Matthew 11, to our passage this morning. Matthew 11, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 27. The master sends an invitation out to many, and only a few respond and come to the banquet. We see the Lord Jesus give a grace, gracious invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight. It's a familiar verse. You might know it by heart. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's one of the sweetest paragraphs in all of Scripture. It is popularly read in, in churches and in gospel invitations, and evangelical tracts. It's an invitation to come to know Jesus Christ, to come to Him, to, to know Him, to walk with Him, to be united with Christ, to have your burdens lifted and your soul rested. It is an invitation to salvation. But, before He sends out this invitation, 
The verses that many people skip over, 25 to 27, Jesus explains something very significant before He sends the invitation out. He says that only those who have their eyes opened will respond to the invitation. In other words, Jesus says, many might hear and read the words of my invitation, come all ye weary, but only a few, by God's choice, will actually come. Let's read the passage. Don't take my words for it. Look at Christ's words. This is the Lord Jesus. He says, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Not my words. Jesus's. God reveals truth to some. And He hides truth from others. No one comes to the Father except those that the Son chooses. The title of my message this morning is The King's Sovereignty in Salvation. The King's Sovereignty in Salvation. Really, God is the sovereign ruler over all things. Amen? Sovereign over all things, and it includes salvation. In love, He chose to save sinners before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And according to His plan, think about this, He yet grants sinners the real choice of either willfully rejecting the gospel call or willfully receiving it in repentance and faith. That is, in our minds, a divine paradox. Hard to understand how God can be absolutely sovereign, which He is, and yet men are held responsible for their choices. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, the matter is a deep mystery that we cannot fathom. The divine paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How God aligns the human will underneath His will. How Paul can say in one breath, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the next breath say, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How can Jesus say both in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then in our passage, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Try to reconcile that in your brain. It's impossible. But let me say this, quick to say this, because it's not reconciled in your brain doesn't mean it's not reconciled in the brain of God. 
God has it all worked out. He gives us truth. Our job is to receive it, to humbly submit to it, and to preach it as He has revealed it. Really, how can we respond to such truth? How can we respond to this great mystery? Paul gives us a response in Romans 11. This is is how we should respond to the sovereignty of God and salvation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who can fathom it? To Him be glory forever. See, I pray this passage of Scripture, the words of Jesus, this insight from Him, will change your perspective on the sovereignty of God in salvation. It is not bad news, it's good news. It's good news. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon encourages us to do this. Enjoy what thou can't explain. Find joy, find peace, find rest, find assurance, find comfort, find hope in the sovereignty of the King in your salvation. That's how Jesus views it. So let's dive into this passage and and seek to... Seek to draw out the truths that the Lord gives us here. Your first point in your outline, and I, I just want to encourage you to listen with an open mind. If, if you've heard about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and, and you're unsure if you really believe it, just listen to Christ's words with an open mind. I, Jesus gives us two reasons, okay? Two reasons God is sovereign in salvation. Reason number one, He is Lord. He's Lord. Look at the title that Jesus gives His Father. He says, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Lord. That is to say, He is the supreme ruler over both heaven and earth. That's what sovereignty means. Sovereignty means to rule over. Or to rule supreme. Now, why does God get that title? What gives Him the right to hold the position as supreme ruler over all? Heaven and earth. Galaxies and cities. What gives Him that right? Well, it starts in the very beginning. In the first verse of the Bible. Do you know it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? Now that verse tells us so much. So much is packed into that first sentence. That's our origin story, by the way. There's the first cause. God created it. God created us. This is where we begin. We don't, it doesn't begin with man. It begin, doesn't begin with a little substance, a crawling worm. It begins with the supreme ruler, God. But this verse tells us more about supreme ownership than anything. Follow me. If He made it, He owns it. In my ceramics class in high school, I've told this story before, we had a sign over the door in ceramics. It said this, if you make it, you own it. And what our teacher wanted us to do was to take ownership of our projects. He wanted us to put our best effort forward. Don't leave your half-baked lumps of clay on the tables or in the oven. Take it home with you. Make something that you'd be proud of. 
that you actually want to keep, that you would use and take home with you. If you make it, you own it. The Apostle Paul uses a similar metaphor about the sovereignty of God in Romans chapter 9. God made it, he owns it. Listen to Paul's words. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What or will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? To make known his power, enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Or to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Listen, friend, I say this kindly, and I'm including myself. We are creatures, we are clay. He is the creator. He is the potter. He made everything. He owns everything. And He determines sovereignly every eternal destiny. And before you put God on the stand, question Him about whether or not that's fair, who are you, O man, to question God? To question his rights, his position, his authority, his power, his sovereignty. We are nothing. We are nothing. He is absolutely sovereign. He's got every right over all of creation. But thanks be to God that we don't submit to or we don't surrender to an evil tyrant. God is good and sovereign. Point number two, the second reason God is sovereign in salvation, number one, He's Lord, and number two, He's pleased. This is reassuring. He is pleased. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And hopefully that doesn't scare you. He's not like a tyrant that's just sporadically doing things differently and and changing circumstances for this person to make it really bad, and making things circumstances better for this person, God is sovereignly good. He works according to His good pleasure. Why does God reveal Himself to some and hide Himself from others? Jesus gives us the ultimate reason in verse 26. Look down. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. It's not a tyrannical will. It's not an evil will. It's not a sporadic will. It is a gracious will. It is good will. Another translation puts it this way. For this way, Father, was pleasing in your sight. Again, Charles Spurgeon writes this. He he says, we can't go any further than this. The choice seems good to him who never errs. Therefore, it is good. This stands to the children of God as the reason which is above all reasons. If God wills it, so it must be. And what a precious truth this is for us. I'm so thankful that it is according, our salvation is according to the good will of God and not the corrupt will of men. 
or the evil, sinful wills of men. What a precious truth. Why would God save such a wretched sinner like me? I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It's because it pleased Him. He wanted to. According to His good will. Well, I mean, what could we do to inherit the glories of the kingdom? Absolutely nothing. But it pleases Him to give it to us freely. Oh, how can I be sure I'll make it? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, but I'm just not sure I'll make it. God makes sure you're going to make it. How? By His gracious will. Philippians 2.13, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How are you saved? According to His good will. How are you sanctified? According to His good will. How are you going to be glorified? Make it to heaven. See Him face to face. Be perfect in glory. According to His good will. He'll be sure of it. That is comforting, comforting truth. His pleasure saves you and sees you through. And I'd say better for my salvation to be in the hands of His good pleasure than to be in the hands of my corrupt soul. I wouldn't make it on my own. But thanks be to God that He works according to His good pleasure. Those are two reasons that Jesus gives in this passage for why God is sovereign. He's Lord over all and He works all things according to His good pleasure. Now how do we respond rightly to those truths? Because they are difficult to swallow. We who think highly of ourselves want to try to reason with God thinking that we know the fair way, we know the best way. God, you don't know. But how should we rightly respond? Two right responses to God's sovereignty. That's the second point in your outline. Two right responses to God's sovereignty we see in this passage. First of all, be thankful. Very simple. Be thankful. The Lord exemplifies this. What does Jesus say in verse 25? I thank you, Father. Jesus doesn't say, I don't understand, Father. I don't think you're fair, Father. He says, I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You've revealed them to little children. Also notice this. Isn't it funny? Jesus doesn't turn to the crowd, turn to his disciples and say, hey, thank you for responding to my call and following me. Thank you for making the right choice. He's, no, no, he goes to the source, the Father. I thank you, Father. We don't do that either, do we? If someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we don't say, thank you, sir, thank you, ma'am, for bowing the knee to Christ. All of us, no matter what your doctrinal position, say, thank you, God, for saving them. Praise you, God, for granting saving faith to this individual, raising this dead man or this dead woman to life. In Jesus Christ. We thank God for His sovereignty and salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul does throughout his letters. He thanks God first for the salvation of his, of his people. Colossians 1, Paul says, we always thank God. We always thank God. Do you always thank God? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all 
the saints. For all the reasons to complain in this life, and there's a lot, not paid enough, not appreciated enough, nobody's good enough, I'm not healthy enough, for all the reasons to complain, when is the last time that you bowed the knee to the Father and thanked Him for your salvation? Thank you, Father, that I am no longer dead in my trespasses and sins. Oh, that would be far worse. Thank you, Father, that I'm not separated from you by my own corruption and sinful way. That would be far worse. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the wandering sheep who's gone astray, falling into crevices, cracks, and injuring myself because of my sin. That would be far worse. Thank you, Father. That it's all in your good hands and it's not in mine. Thank you, Father, for opening my eyes to receive the greatest gift in history. Thank you, Father, that you've saved my loved ones, my neighbors, my brothers and sisters in the church. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you always give thanks? That's the first right response to the sovereignty of God is to be thankful. That it's in his hands and not mine. The second right response is to be humble. Be humble. Look at the characteristics of those who God reveals salvation to. He says, you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And you've revealed them to little children. So he has concealed truth, hidden truth, covered truth. From the wise and the understanding. Those who are wise are disciplined in study and in practice. Those who are understanding are are quick learners. They're clever. They're intelligent people. Natural talents. I believe that Jesus uses these two categories to describe the person who relies on their own discipline or their own cleverness To earn heaven. They think they can work or they can reason their way to God. There are those who are wise in their own eyes. Proverbs 3 talks about. They are prideful and self-dependent. At the end of the day, they are those who cannot stand looking up to God. And so they raise themselves, or they try to raise themselves up to a place where they can see Him eye to eye. That's the wise and the understanding. It's not so much that, you know, if God has granted you great intelligence, if you're a smart person, that that's what sinks you. It's the pride that could come with that. By the way, if that's not rid of, you will never see God. Your favorite conservative podcaster or YouTube guy, although he may seem close to God, may be very far for this reason. He's relying on his own wisdom and understanding, thinking that his reasoning, his intelligence, or her, can get him to God, get him to the Father. That's just not true. Calvin writes this, God throws down men like this, that it may not obscure the praise of His divine grace. 
Paul writes, and we read this verse in our scripture reading, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low, despised, forsaken, neglected, insignificant in our eyes, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that think they are. It is a foolish endeavor, friend, to try and raise yourself up by your own human strength, by your own, by your own reason, your own skill, It would be better to take the posture of a baby, a little child, Jesus says. He reveals them, look at verse 25, to little children. Spurgeon writes this, Babes are weak and inexperienced. They are simple and unsophisticated. They can cling, they can trust, they can cry and love. To these, the Lord opens the treasures of wisdom. I remember my first moments with my children, all three of them, looking at these babies just fresh out of the womb. Picking them up, holding them in my hands. I could hold them just like this. Feeling the weight of the responsibility that I now have for this child. This little child is utterly dependent upon me and the mother. Cannot live without me or the mother, especially the mother. Can you imagine that little newborn infant infant coming out of the womb and pushing away the mother's milk, wiggling out of her arms, trying to smack her, hit her, pull away from her, run away, resolve to care for itself. Could you imagine? Good luck, little one. You're not going to make it far. This is the reality of every one of us, isn't it? Sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. God made us. God loves us. God makes us the crown of His creation, made in the image of God. And we recklessly throw all that away, reject Him, run headlong after sinful pleasures and worldliness, absolutely corrupt, rebels to their core, In pride, then we somehow think, oh, we can make our way back to God. We can make ourselves smart enough to reason with God to let us into His kingdom. And the ultimate reality is that those who are prideful, those who are self-reliant, their destiny is death and destruction. It is only those who have been saved by grace, moved to become alive, born again, that can come to saving relationship with God through Christ. You need to first humble yourself. Come to a place of desperation and dependence, recognizing you have nothing. You need a rescuer. You need a Savior outside of yourself. You need a mediator. And that's point number three of your outline. That's the third truth that Jesus presents here. He is the mediator of God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace flows through to us through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. And in the context, all things pertaining to salvation. I have full authority, all the power, all the resources, all the strength that I need to reveal salvation to you and to accomplish it on your behalf. Jesus understands that He is the sacrifice. He's the atonement. 
He's the mediator. He's the great high priest who can draw us to God, who can bridge the gap between God and man. He's the supreme delegate. One with the Father. Notice how Jesus calls Him My Father in verse 27. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. When the Jews heard that, they picked up stones to kill Him. Because they understood what that means. By calling God in the Father in such a personal way, My Father meant he was uniting himself with the Father. He was one in essence with his Father. That's what they understood that phrase to mean, and that's what it does mean. Jesus speaks of their unity and their personal, intimate relationship. Look at verse 27. He says, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Perfect union, perfect appreciation for one another. Perfect love, perfect knowledge. Holy Father and His Holy Son. From the outside looking in, we're amazed. We can't fathom what, what kind of personal relationship that's like between the Holy Father and the Holy Son. And furthermore, even the Holy Spirit in the triunity of God. It's fascinating. We can't fathom such perfection in relationships. We, we can hardly compare it to our own earthly fatherly relationships. Because we know our fathers are sinners. We as fathers are sinners. We're flawed. We are not in perfect union with our children. We were never in perfect union with our father. We look and we can't fathom it, but I can tell you this. I know you want it. I know you want a relationship like that with God. You want to know God personally. You want to be able to commune with Him. Be united again with Him. And you see this big wall, this big gap between you and Him because He is holy and you are not. Who can fill the gap? Who can mediate between me, a sinner, and a holy God? There's only one. And that's what Jesus is moving to explain here. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son. And here's Him reaching the arm down to earth. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is saying, I'm the gap between a perfect knowledge of God and your relationship with God. Know me through me. My choosing of you and your receptiveness to me, you can know the Father. Jesus, friend, is the only door. He's the only gatekeeper. He's the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through Him. John 14.6 He's the mediator between God and man. Spurgeon writes this, All things are placed in His hands. Fit hands toward God and fit hands toward man. For who else knows both in perfection? Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus bridges the gap. Perfectly God, perfectly man comes to this earth, lives a perfect life, obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, which wasn't just physical torment and suffering, but he suffered under the wrath of God. Wrath meant for you and I, sinners, but Jesus was sinless. He 
gives himself as a sacrifice, a holy sacrifice to atone for our sins. And he dies burying our sin in the grave. And that's not the end of the story. Three days later, he raises up to new life. He's victorious over sin and death, leaving sin and death in the grave. And he is raised to new life, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And only those who believe in him can know the Father, can have right relationship with God. He is the mediator. And because of Jesus, listen, recipients of grace can approach the unapproachable. We can touch the untouchable. We can see the invisible. We can know the unknowable through Jesus Christ. So listen, lay down your science books. Put down your self-help books. Lay down your best efforts, your filthy rags. Lay down your lofty arguments, your man-centered reasoning or philosophies. Cling only to Christ to know God. Cling only to Christ. The Son chooses to reveal Himself to few. And those who receive Him, those who have their eyes open, will respond humbly, will recognize their sinners, and they will trust only in Jesus Christ, nothing else. I want you to turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I want to close by looking at this window into the relationship between the Father and the Son. And you're in this. He prays for you if you're His. John 17, 1-10 When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me. They've received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. What a beautiful window into the relationship of a father and his son. And your new relationship with the father through the son. Christian, 
you have a gracious, merciful, faithful mediator in Jesus Christ. Be ready every day to respond to his invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. That invitation is coming next week. But be ready. Prepare yourself by being thankful and humbling yourself before God. Thank him. Cling to him. Love him. Live for Christ. No one else. And non-Christian, let me be explicit. If you don't have the relationship with God and you know it, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't think for a second that you can get into heaven or that you can know the Father going around Jesus. Going around surrendering to Christ. Going around believing wholeheartedly in Him. Trusting in yourself or anybody else. Look to Jesus. Respond to His invitation. Find salvation only in the Son who chooses you before you choose Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, marvelous truths that we cannot fathom. And God, just naturally... As men, Lord, we we struggle with things that we can't understand. We fight against them. We try to argue our way around them or, or reason with you, God, to boast in ourselves, to put ourselves in a place where we think we can be like God, where we can make the choices, where we can determine what's fair and what's not fair. God, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would you would gently push us down to remind us that you are the sovereign king and that you have given all things, all authority to your son, Jesus Christ, the Christ, the coming king. And that even in, your, even in our salvation, God, you're sovereign over that and the only response that we can have is to be thankful, to humble ourselves, to receive it. God, I pray that you would Work in the hearts of people here that those who don't know you, you would grant them the faith to see. You'd open their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ, the perfect mediator between God and men, that they would entrust their lives to Him and Him alone. Grant salvation today, God, please. And we will praise you alone and thank you alone for it. And God, I pray that you would encourage us and bolster our faith, those of us in Christ, those of us who do have a faithful mediator, We would continue to trust Him, cling to Him, and come to Him. Though we are weary and heavy laden. In Jesus' name, amen.